Hello, welcome to The Intersect. I'm Mark Riley, and thank you so much for listening to this episode of my podcast. The G7, what is it, what does it mean, and most importantly, what, if anything, can it actually accomplish? First, the G7 consists of the United States, the United Kingdom, Canada, Germany, Italy, Japan, and France. The EU is also represented, and this year South Africa, South Korea, and Australia are participating in parts of the gathering. India is also participating, but virtually. The seven see themselves as the world's wealthy nations, as well as liberal democracies. That's the overview. The reality is a good deal more complex. Russia was a member until 2014, when they were bounced for annexing Crimea. Donald Trump pressed for their readmission three years later, but that suggestion was rejected. Perhaps a relevant indicator of the G7's global clout is this. Three decades ago, the aggregate gross domestic product of the G7 was 70% of the world's GDP. Today, it's down to 45%. As is the case with most world gatherings, there's a whole lot of pomp and circumstance, photo opportunities, steak and lobster dinners, that sort of thing. It's sort of like air kisses at an awards show. And then they get to meet the queen. And then there's the substance. To their credit, the G7 pledged 1 billion COVID vaccines to poor and developing countries. The other side of that equation, however, is that some critics say it's just a drop in the bucket. The WHO is saying that the developing countries around the world need 11 billion COVID vaccines, not 1 billion. Now, given the wealth that we hear and constantly hear about the G7, they should be able to do 11 billion vaccines, one would think. But... That's not in the cards. They are patting themselves on the back for the $1 billion. They also signed on to the Carbis Bay Declaration. Carbis Bay is where they actually had the conference, or should I call it a summit or a conference, gathering, group, whatever. The Carbis Bay Declaration was aimed at stopping a repeat of the COVID crisis in the future. It centers around stopping future animal-borne diseases within 100 days of its spread to humans. Yet commitments are often made at these summits, and many people may remember some of them, and many of them are not always delivered. The G7 countries face a challenge equal to COVID. Newly released data shows that carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is at its highest level in at least 63 years. That's right, folks. Climate change. The pandemic has brought the necessity of attacking the climate crisis front and center. So what does British Prime Minister Boris Johnson do? He flies to the conference in Cornwall from London in a private jet. That's right. Flew from London to Cornwall in a private jet. Now, those of you who don't know all that much about British transportation, they got trains. Boris could have taken a train from London to Cornwall. Bad optics, bad, bad optics. And you know what else is bad optics? When you have a climate crisis, and if that climate crisis is telling you that the developed world 
is where a lot of the problems in terms of greenhouse gas emissions are going to be in the future. One would think that you would invite, for example, the African country that has done the most to fight climate change. That would be Kenya. But Kenya was not present at the G7. Now, I could sit here and recite a whole bunch of statistics about emissions and uh, pledges, that is, to lower greenhouse gases by a certain amount by 2025, 2030, 2050, whatever. But the most important point is this. Quite frankly, none of it's good enough. While rich countries are cutting their emissions, the developing world is a different story. In the next two decades, according to the International Energy Agency, more than 90% of emissions will come from emerging economies. Yet those same economies represent less than 20% of global clean energy investments. Now, they have talked, and, and Prince Charles has actually made a point of saying that the developed world ought to be lending developing countries money to invest in clean energy. And that may not be too bad of a start. Although I must be, uh, I have to say, you know, if the wealthy countries are as wealthy as they say they are, they could give them some of this. Maybe part of it could be loans, but part of them could be grants. One thing's for certain, much work needs to be done. The G7 needs to drill down their emissions faster than they planned or committed to. Further, the wealthy nations must begin to share clean air technology with those nations still dependent on fossil fuels. In the U.S., the challenge is relatively simple. The nation must turn away from fossil fuels once and for all. Now, to credit the United States, to credit some of these G7 countries, they have moved certainly in terms of fossil fuel emissions from motor vehicles, They have begun to move toward electric vehicles, hybrid vehicles, a lot more of them on the streets of Great Britain, uh, Denmark, other places, uh, more certainly in the United States as well. A lot more hybrids. That has to be accelerated. And one thing they could do, and and this is going to be the difficult part of the work here, folks, changes as small as sustainable alternatives to gasoline and as big as getting union pension funds to divest from big oil. Now, you will hear screeches and screams and squealing from one end of America to the other about actually moving away from fossil fuels. You see, they're screaming and crying about the pipelines that are proposed and some of which have been stopped by the Biden administration. Those pipelines are oil pipelines. Those pipelines are, in fact, fossil fuel. If America's serious, if some of these other countries are serious, if the Chinese are serious, then they have to move away from these fossil fuels once and for all, whether it's oil, coal, natural gas, I don't care what it is. They have to set the example, and they have to do it before 2050, when most of the people who are dickering over this now will be gone. There needs to be much more work 
done. There needs to be more accomplished. Now, you can't put it all on the G7, but the reports that I've seen show, you know, people gathering and taking pictures together. And there is a big beef between the European Union and the United Kingdom over Northern Ireland. I'm not going to get into all that. The bottom line is climate change and COVID are the two things these folks need to get accomplished. Now, again, you know, please don't blame me too much. I have a tendency to be a little cynical about these groups of people coming together and essentially air kissing and shaking hands and having all of these high-level conferences and eating steak and lobster. And don't ask me how I know they ate steak and lobster because that was part of what was covered in the media. And that, folks, is part of the problem. The G7 says it will defund coal-fired power stations in poor countries by the end of this year. And that's a good thing. Now, if they could just get Boris Johnson to travel by train. Up next, lab leak or natural occurrence? And how will anyone find out the truth? And plugging leaks by seizing data of House Democrats and journalists? Stay with us. This is The Intersection. Hey, what up, y'all? It's your boy, Fab Five Freddy, and I'm live and direct, home in Harlem, tuned in to my main man, dropping all his great information. Mark Riley, The Intersection is live, y'all. Tune in. What's happening in your world? Is there an issue you'd like me to talk about? Hit me up with a comment on Facebook. Welcome back to The Intersection. You know, the truth is, nobody knows for sure how the coronavirus spread with such rapid ferocity around the world. There are two theories. One, the virus was transmitted from an animal, perhaps a bat, at one of Wuhan, China's animal markets. The other, more sinister scenario, is that the virus was either accidentally or deliberately leaked from a laboratory in Wuhan. Now, again... These are the two prevailing theories. There are others, but these are the two most prominent. And some of the others are just a wee bit whack, if you know what I mean. A World Health Organization probe concluded the animal transmission theory was most likely the cause. That, for a good while, was the prevailing wisdom. Now, new information has managed to resurrect the lab leak hypothesis. It reached such currency that Dr. Anthony Fauci, previously a skeptic of the lab leak theory, has called for further investigation, as has President Joe Biden. Right-wing media is having a field day, calling for, among other things, Fauci's resignation. That's because it's possible the lab leak took place as part of a U.S.-backed series of experiments that some hold Fauci responsible for. Yet for all the back and forth, a significant number of scientists believe the origins of the coronavirus will never be known. Repeat, never be known. So why is this so important? Obviously, it's important because everyone wants to see to it that it never happens again. 
Yet, if the WHO, the World Health Organization, investigated once, what will U.S. and other intelligence operations come up with that will be different? The answer can be summed up in two words. Chinese transparency, or lack of same. Now, I want to ask this question, and I, you know, I ask it in all due respect for all the politicians, all, all the other people that think they can get to the bottom of this particular question. What makes anybody think the Chinese government will cooperate with a second probe into the origins of coronavirus? What is the upside for them? Is the rest of the world going to impose sanctions such that they'll, you know, jump up and say, okay, I I give, go ahead, do what you want to do. Look where you want to look. That didn't even happen the first time. There were reports that the WHO, uh, how best to put this, did not have access to everything they wanted to examine when they were in China the first time looking for the origins of COVID-19. Now, if the G7 or anybody else on the planet think the Chinese will be bullied into cooperating with them, they need to think again. That leaves any future conclusions about COVID to intelligence agencies. Biden knows this, and that's why he's tasked them and not scientists or doctors to do this work. And how have the Chinese reacted? (laughs) No surprise here. They have, in addition to vehemently denying the lab leak theory, They are now saying, their media is now saying, that COVID may have started in the U.S. And you want to talk about pushback. And you think these people are going to sit up and say, okay, fine, come on in, investigate what you want. Or even, and this happens all the time, dump some kind of false intelligence for U.S. intel agencies to pick up and then turn around and report back to President Biden. For the U.S., it doesn't help that the lab leak theory was promoted primarily by former President Trump and his allies. This renewed scrutiny has given him a chance at a victory lap, even though there's no definitive word on which theory will prevail in the end. And and that really is, folks, the important part. There is no finality here. I don't care how many intelligence agencies you have in you have investigating this, there is likely to be no conclusion that is final. Nothing that says, okay, it was a lab leak, or okay, we're certain it was a bat. Speaking of what our friends at the Wonkette have taken to calling the former guy, his obsession, that is, over leaks about his contacts with Russia apparently led to some shifty behavior on the part of his Justice Department. We already know that journalists and news organizations were spied on, and personal information about some were collected, including CNN's Barbara Starr. And I, I mean, you know, if you were one of, if, if somebody got in touch with you and told you that a couple of years back, the federal government was collecting all kinds of data about you, your emails, your contacts, etc. How do you think you'd feel? And if you were a journalist, do you wonder whether or not it might have an effect on your ability to do your job 
Well, this is what we're looking at here. The question of whether this violates the law is far above my pay grade. Even if you take as a given investigating journalists to plug leaks, they tried to dig up dirt on lawmakers and their families. And it seems to me way, way over the top. Especially since one of those probed was a minor, by the way. In 2018, the FBI sent a subpoena to Apple seeking metadata on 100 accounts. The pretext was they were searching for leaks of classified information. They also slept Apple, slapped Apple, that is, with a gag order, meaning they couldn't tell anyone about it. The order was renewed three times, the last of which expired earlier this year. That's when Apple was allowed to notify the targets of this surveillance, according to CNN. CNN also reported that records seized had nothing to do with Russia. The major congressional targets appear to be a pair of California congressmen, Adam Schiff and Eric Swalwell. Both were critical of Donald Trump. There isn't yet evidence tying the spying of lawmakers to that of journalists, but in a bizarre twist, it has been revealed that the Department of Justice subpoenaed Twitter to find the identity of a user who had a parody account who criticized Trump ally, Congressman Devin Nunes. Now, what that has to do with Russia or leaks or whatever is beyond me, but why would the Justice Department subpoena Twitter to find out a guy who ran a parody Twitter account? What all this appears to show is the lengths to which the government will go not just to plug leaks, but also to gather information that could be used to silence critics. I don't know the extent to which previous administrations, other than Trump's, dug as deeply into the lives of critics as he did. One would hope not, but you can never actually be sure. Politicians, I don't care whether Democrat, Republican, Tory, or Whig, they all hate leaks, whether the information was classified or not. Suffice to say, they care deeply about leaks that show them in a bad light. And of course, the irony here is that Trump complained throughout his presidency that he was being spied on. He aimed his ire at the administration of his predecessor, Barack Obama. Nothing ever came of those accusations, but hey, I quibble, and I guess so does Donald Trump. Right now, we do know that the Department of Justice's internal watchdog has already begun an investigation. The Senate is also making noises about a probe, one that would compel both Attorneys General Bill Barr and Jeff Sessions to testify. But here's one thing we know for sure. The privacy of the average American no longer exists as we've come to expect. And there seems to be very, very little any of us can do about it. Finally, racism in the NFL, a league that is 70% black. Yep, find out all about race norming when we come back. This is The Intersection. It's Mark Riley with The Intersection of Politics and Culture. Stay tuned.
Welcome back to The Intersection. This story comes to me courtesy of my son, Chris. I'd never heard of race norming before, so it was a surprise to me to read that the National Football League announced that it would end the practice. Then I dug a wee bit deeper and dug into an article that my son sent me. Race norming is a policy that assumes black football players have a lower cognitive function than non-black players. Now, this is not after getting knocked around for 10 years in the NFL. They say that black players start out, start out with a lower cognitive function than non-black players. It regards a compensation program within the league. People started paying attention to race norming after two former players filed a lawsuit last year, charging that race norming was used to deny them compensation for showing a cognitive deficit after the end of their playing careers. They alleged that if they were white, they would have qualified. A league spokesperson, and this is the interesting part about all this, folks, a league spokesperson says race norming should no longer be used in determining compensation, but they say they have no alternative that can be used right away. Now, to me, that would seem to be a tacit admission, A, that they were using race norming, and B, that they knew they shouldn't have been using race norming. This is critically important because the NFL signed a landmark $1 billion settlement that purported to compensate former players for concussion and other injuries they suffered as players. More than 2,000 retirees have filed claims of decline in cognitive functioning after their, or during their playing careers, I should say, but of those less than 600, less than half, actually about one-third, have actually received awards. The two players who filed the lawsuit, Najee Davenport and Kevin Henry, lost their cases, but they filed an appeal. Davenport calls the policy the definition of systematic racism. Even as their case was dismissed, the judge hearing it ordered the league and the plaintiffs to settle a case through arbitration. It's also interesting that the judge wants a report on race norming, which could prove and might even be able to provide a racial breakdown that currently does not exist. In other words, the NFL has been not keeping track at all as to who was being rejected and whether or not the majority or a disproportionate share of those people who were rejected were black people. They don't know. There was no racial breakdown, is no racial breakdown. Now, if you step back from all the micro components of this issue and look at the larger issue, you will see something that to me is extraordinarily troubling. Here's a league that is comprised of 70% black players, 70%. Yet when it comes to giving former players money for serious injuries, they suffered as a result of giving up their bodies and minds, and I emphasize not just their bodies, but their minds, their brain function in many cases. And there was stories on top of stories on top of stories about retired NFL players who are not even around anymore, people like Junior Seau, for example, who passed away before they were able to get 
a great deal of compensation from the NFL. These folks gave it all up to play this professional game. And the league seemed to put, seems to put former black players several steps back from non-blacks. Now, I think, this is just my opinion, I think most black people would say that's racism. I would go even further than that and say that it's racism based on money. The less the league has to pay these players, the better. And mind you, these are teams that are worth several billion dollars, each and every one of them. It's not like the league is broke. It's not like the owners of these teams are broke. What unfortunately ends up getting broken all too often are the players themselves. Mild dementia, moderate dementia, severe dementia. From playing this particular game and giving up their bodies and their brains to this game. It's a cold, hard fact. Professional football is a tough, brutal sport. It should not be made tougher for black players who have given their all to this game. Thanks again for listening to this episode of The Intersection. The executive producer of the broadcast is Ms. Kim Jack Riley. Music is by Eric Lund. Until we meet again, please stay well.